we are so grateful that you decided to spend your Sunday morning with us today. I am just excited about what we're talking about. We are still in the book of, of Colossians. As you see there, we're talking about the supremacy of Christ. And we've been talking about that now for several weeks. We're in chapter 4 today. You know, strategies are very important. Uh, they are an intentional way of dealing with an issue or a problem. Uh, now I need, uh, I know it's the fifth Sunday today, and so the kids that are in the, the, the older kids' ministries are in here with us today. I need somebody, at least in the third grade or older, to be a volunteer for me. Right here, come on up. Now you are a brave soul because you have no idea what you're volunteering for, do you? Yeah, that's silly. Okay, I'm going to show you a strategy, and I want you to tell me what that strategy is for. I'll bet you can do it, okay? Here we go. Stop, drop, and roll. What is that the strategy for? If, you, if uh, there's fire. If there's fire, any particular place? On you. Good, very good job. She said, if there's fire on you, stop, drop, and roll. Did you see that? Give her a hand. You did great. Thank you. Honey. All right, listen, this is a great strategy for what you should do if you find yourself to be on fire. We learn this very early, don't we? We teach our children this. In fact, we reinforce it with them. Uh, everybody, I don't know what grade they teach this in now, but probably first, second, third grade, somewhere in there, they teach kids, hey, listen, if you find yourself on fire, stop, drop, and roll. In fact, we want them to know that so well that it just, it just becomes like an instinct thing for them, right? It is beyond, uh, we want it to be beyond their, their, their decision to do this. We don't want them to go, okay, let's see, now I'm on fire. What did my teacher say? Oh, yeah, let's see, I think that's three steps. Oh, I'm burning up. Three steps. Uh, the first one is, okay, let me think of the whole thing through. Stop, drop. We don't, we want them to do that. We want them to immediately go, oh my goodness, there's fire. Stop, drop, and roll. Right? We want them to do it by instinct. So when we find our friends and our family in danger of being separated from God for eternity, what should our strategy be? What should our strategy be? Paul gives us a very a simple strategy that we should just know by instinct. This is something that we should do as fast as stop, drop, and roll. And here's the strategy. Pray, walk, and speak. When you come into contact with a person that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, who hasn't yet given their life to him, you should immediately start executing this strategy. Pray, walk, and speak. And Paul talks about this to the Colossian church. We're going to read it in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6 this morning. We're going to look at those. I'm going to read through them, and then we're going to go back and take them apart a little bit uh, at a time, okay? But let's just read through them. Here's what Paul says. He writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And so we see here that Paul has this three-step strategy. And the first step in the strategy is to pray. And he says, start out praying this way, devotedly. Now, I know for all you teachers in the room, yes, that is a word. I wasn't quite sure it was. I was going to use it anyway. But I found out that there really was a word. It's devotedly. 
devotedly. Look back at Colossians verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. He says, be steadfast in it. He's talking here about praying consistently, being persistent. In fact, uh, later in this very chapter, in verse 12, he's going to speak about his friend Epaphras, who's actually one of the Colossians who's with Paul. And he says that he struggles or wrestles in his prayers. As he prays for others, he struggles or wrestles. I mean, it's, a, it's work for him to pray. He does it all the time. It wears him out. He's praying so consistently and, and with, with such dedication that it's almost like physical exercise. Now, what does it mean to be devoted? It means to be focused. It means to be singularly focused, not getting distracted. It means no matter, matter what happens, we just do it. Do you ever find yourself in the situation where you go, now this week I'm really going to pray. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm serious about it this time. I'm really going to do it this week. I'm going to pray every day. And then you get busy, and you get busy doing things, and something comes up, and, and, and it doesn't go quite as you scheduled or as you thought it was going to go, and things are just kind of out of whack, and you get to the end of the week, and you go, wow, I, I didn't really pray at all. I've got to figure out a way to do that. And so the next week you start over again. Folks, this means that, that we pray no matter what. It becomes one of the highest focuses of our life. If Christ is supreme, then we should make this a supreme part of our life. We should never be too busy. We should never get distracted. We should never be trying to scheme our way out of situations. It's really funny that we always pray lastly instead of firstly, right? We get into a bind, we, we do everything we can to figure it out, to work it out, and then if it doesn't work and we get desperate, we pray. We should pray first. Our intentions of praying for others are sometimes way better than our execution. And I would say Paul's saying here, listen folks, you gotta pray. You gotta do it consistently, persistently. Do we pray for others as though their eternity was at stake? Because it is. It is at stake. Do we pray that way? Here's an example of a guy who's really devoted to something. Now, I'm not suggesting any of you do this, okay? But I just want you to see what devotion looks like. There's a guy right there. This is Gary Duschel. He began his hobby on March 11th, 1965, creating a gum wrapper chain from discarded Wrigley wrappers. These are gum wrapper chains. They were big fad uh, in our country at that time. Basically, Gary never stopped. On March 11th, 2014, he continued his reign as Guinness World Record holder with 78,550 feet containing 1,871,538 wrappers. Now, that's a lot of wrappers, right? Now, I don't know if there was a way to measure our prayers but I wonder if all the prayers we've prayed in our life or since 1965 would measure up to 78,550 feet of prayer. The reality is, folks, Gary's probably way more committed to his gum chain than most of us are to prayer. I don't say that to, to make you feel guilty. I say that to, to encourage you, to encourage us to do better, to do better. We should be better than Gary is at doing gum wrappers. By the way, I don't know how he chewed all that gum. I'm surprised he has any teeth left. All right, so we should pray devotedly. Second, we should pray alertly. 
alertly. Look back at Colossians 4.2 again. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We, we just need to pay attention, folks. We need to pay attention to the spiritual things that are going around, on a, around us for the gospel's sake. We need to watch out for ourselves, and we need to be alert to try and rescue those who are without Christ around us. You know, I've seen uh, some of you in international airports. I've traveled with some of you internationally before. I've seen people in international airports. We're very alert, aren't we? We've got our, we're touching our bag all the time. We're looking around. You know, everybody's a suspect. We're, you know, just paying attention to everything. Somebody's going to swipe our bag. Somebody's going to take our stuff. Somebody, you know, and we're, we're very cautious when we're in that kind of environment. How cautious are we? to pay attention to the spiritual things going on around us. We need to know what's going on so that we can pray about what's going on. And and here, folks, this is the fifth time now that Paul has talked about thanksgiving or thanks in, in conjunction with prayer just in this letter to the Colossians. Fifth time. He's trying to make a point. God's making a point. Folks, when we sit down and and really see how God has blessed our lives, how God has blessed our lives in so many ways, spiritually, relationally, physically, emotionally, I mean, all those things, we should just, we should be wanting to share that. When I think about how Christ has changed my life and transformed my life, man, I'm, I'm anxious to share it with other people. This should be a part of it. But our thanksgiving causes us to be more alert, causes us to be more consistent or persistent. We should be looking for opportunities to pray as well as praying for opportunities. Praying for opportunities. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, At the same time, pray also for us. Remember, Paul's in a prison that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Now, this is one of the most uh, profound statements, I think, in the book of Colossians. It's very profound. He's not praying for the door of his prison to be open. He, he doesn't say, listen, hey, pray for the door of my prison to swing open so I can be free. Not, he doesn't even ask for that. He says, pray for the door of opportunity to do the thing that got me put in prison in the first place. It's so counterintuitive yet it's so Christ-like. It would be like saying, hey, I want you to pray that I get to punch somebody in the face here in prison since I'm in prison for punching somebody in the face. A little counterintuitive, isn't it? But he's saying, look, this is why I'm in prison. I get it. But I'm saying pray for me to have more opportunities to do the very thing that got me in prison. In fact, in the book of Philippians, folks, Paul actually states that most of the guards and prisoners have heard the gospel from him while he's been in prison. We need to pray for opportunities and then look for them. And then when God answers our prayers, take them. We don't do that. Even if we are good at praying for them, folks, I don't think we're good at looking for them, expecting God to answer our prayers. And then when he does answer them, we actually take them. So there's a three-step process you see here. Uh, First, you, you pray for those opportunities. A second, you watch for those opportunities, look for them, and then when they take place, you, you take advantage of it and you share the gospel with people. In fact, I wonder sometimes if we don't actually pray for the opposite. Have you ever heard anything like this in your mind? 
man, I'm going to this class reunion or maybe a family reunion, and I hope nobody brings up my faith. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to have to answer questions. Boy, I hope nobody talks about Jesus because I don't know what I'm going to say. If that's the case, folks, that, that's a problem. That's the opposite of what we should be praying for. We shouldn't be praying for, for God to close doors for us to talk about our faith, but we should be asking him to open doors to share our faith. And then when he does it, we need to pray for clarity of speech. Back in verses 3 and 4. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now listen, Paul was a great lecturer. He was a great debater. He was a really well-spoken guy. And yet he's asking for clarity of speech. He doesn't want to beat around the bush. He just wants to deliver the gospel. And by the way, he's talking specifically about the gospel, not every theological idea on the planet. He's not saying, hey, give me clarity of speech to explain everything in the universe to these guys. Say, no, give me clarity of speech so that I can present the gospel incredibly clear. And folks, what he's talking about is simply this, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The reality is that we're all sinners who displease God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We deserve separation from God because of our sin. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. Romans 10.9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. By believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and putting your faith and trust in him as your Lord, you will be forgiven of your sins and saved from condemnation. That's pretty clear. That's not confusing. That is clear as crystal. And Paul's saying, give me clarity of speech so that I may present the gospel to those around me. There's only one way to salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And folks, we need to share that with those around us. So we need to pray devotedly, alertly, pray for opportunities, and then pray for clarity of speech. The second step in the strategy is to walk. Walk. Paul, Paul says to walk with wisdom. Look at verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Of course, he's writing to a church, and so the outsiders are those who have not yet put their faith and trust in Jesus. And he says, listen, walk with wisdom. Walk with wisdom when you're with them. As we live with and around those who are far from God, we need to live wisely. We need to live wisely. People are looking for reasons to deny Christ because of our behavior. Don't give them that excuse. Now, I'm not saying live perfectly because we can't do that. But don't become the one big hindrance from somebody giving their life to Jesus. You know, I, I, I hope that I never have to experience something like... Uh, Somebody says, well, you know, I, I would give my life to Jesus. I've heard the gospel a few times. I think it's probably true. I would do that. Um, but, you know, Michael Porter's a Christian. He's kind of a jerk. I don't think I want to be a Christian if he's one. 
I don't want to be the hindrance that causes somebody not to give their life to Christ. We should walk in a way, we should walk in a way that causes people to be intrigued by the gospel, to draw them to the gospel, not in a way that would repel them from it. I also think that walking in wisdom is having some kind of a personal strategy. A personal strategy. Paul's strategy was to get arrested and then witness to the inmates and guards. Now, I'm not a big fan of that strategy. I've been to the Clay, Clay County and the Platte County jails a few times, but I've been on one side of the glass. I like that side of the glass. It's not very pleasant still, but it's still a nice place to be on that side of the glass. But we need to have a personal strategy for connecting with lost people. Now, a few months ago, I was, I was thinking about, uh, we were getting the 3G campaign rolling and everything, and I was thinking, I, I, we want to be more generous people. We need to find ways to be more generous people. Um, and I was also going through a period of time where I was thinking, you know, I'm, uh, since I quit my job and I became full-time at the church a couple of years ago, uh, I, I just know fewer and fewer lost people, fewer and fewer people that are far from God. And, and I don't ever want to get to the place where, as a pastor, I say, Boy, I'd witness more, but I just don't know any lost people. Now, I, I make contact with people when I'm pumping gas with them or, you know, I, I meet somebody at a, a restaurant or something like that. Um, but I don't really get to talk to people that um, are very far from God. In fact, I think I've even begun to lose uh, my understanding of how people who are far from God think. So a couple of weeks ago, I did a very radical thing. I became an Uber driver. That's right. 10 o'clock at night, you call for an Uber, I might show up at your door. So in the last two weeks, I've had 32 people, or 32 groups of people in my car. By the way, I'm not using the van. For anybody who's worried, (laughs) I'm not using the old beater van. I'm using my wife's beautiful new car, okay? Uh, I've had 32 groups of people in my car, and except for the ones that are like three blocks or four blocks, uh, almost every single one of them, we get into a conversation, and their questions, I mean, it's almost like a, a script. They say, hey, how long have you been driving for Uber? I say, well, just for a couple of weeks. I go, oh, how do you like it? I like it. I say, are you full-time? Oh, gee. By the way, you're never going to get rich driving for Uber, so don't think that way. Okay? I'm like, no, I'm not full-time. I have another job. Guess what they ask? What's your other job? And I go, bing. I'm a pastor. Now, some of them go, oh. <laughs> but many of them, more often than not, they go, oh, really? That's interesting. And I've had some really good conversations with people. In fact, uh, one lady that I picked up downtown took her to her home in Smithville. We had quite a conversation. And during that time, she told me that she goes to church every once in a while with her grandmother. But her grandmother's church is really kind of old-fashioned. She doesn't like it, and she wouldn't take any of her friends to it. And she said, I think I need to find a church that thinks about things in a new way. They have different ways of believing. I said, well, what about a church that believes the same way as your grandmother's church, but it does things differently? That concept had never even entered her mind. She thought if it was going to be attractive to younger people, all the beliefs had to be different. She never connected the fact that the beliefs could be uh, something that applied, because I shared this with her, uh, to all times, all places, all people, and it can just be wrapped in a little bit different uh, uh, package and still be the same truth. That really intrigued her. She'd never thought that way. We had a great conversation. Now, I'm going to get better at this, folks, and I, I, I'm not a betting man, 
uh, even though I do pick up people at casinos every once in a while. I'm not a betting man, but I'll bet you something. I'll bet you I get a chance to share the gospel with somebody before this year is over, at least one. Or if I have a little more practice in these little short time periods, I'm going to get really good at sharing the gospel with people really quickly, and I'll bet we're going to see somebody come to Christ. Folks, you need a personal strategy. I'm not encouraging everybody to be an Uber driver, okay? But do you have a way of of building relationships and connecting with people who are far from God? Sometimes we get into these bubbles where we, we get surrounded by the people that look and think like us. We hang around them. We spend time with them. We go to church with them. We go to work with them. We hang out in our neighborhoods with them. And we isolate ourselves from all the people that really need to hear what we have to say. I think we need to really have a strategy. I don't really approve of Paul's strategy of going to prison, and I'm not suggesting everybody should be an Uber driver, but you need to figure out your personal strategy for meeting and connecting with lost people so you can share the gospel with them. He says not only to walk with wisdom, but walk with a sense of urgency. Walk with a sense of urgency. Look at verse 5 again. It says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. And the King James Version, the Bible says, a redeeming the time. It means to buy it back. Time is slipping away from us, folks. And by the way, your grandparents were right when they told you it gets faster and faster as you get older. It does. Time is slipping away from us, and we have got to redeem. We've got to buy back the time with people who are far from God. Former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, in his autobiography, Why Not the Best, he shares that with every year his church, Plains Baptist Church in Georgia, held revival meetings. In preparation for the week, the leaders of the congregation would venture into the community, inviting non-church members to the services. As a deacon, Carter always participated in this exercise. He would visit a few homes, read some scriptures, maybe pray for them, share some religious thoughts, and then would talk about the weather, the crops, whatever, and, and then leave. Carter wrote, I was always proud enough of this effort to retain a clear conscience throughout the remainder of the year. Now, one day, Carter was asked to speak at a church in Preston, Georgia. The topic that they asked him to speak about was Christian witnessing. As Carter sat in his study writing the speech, he decided he would make a great impression upon the audience by sharing with them how many home visits he made for God. He figured in the 14 years he had conducted at least 140 visits Carter proudly wrote the number in his script. As he sat there, he began to reflect on the 1966 governor's race. As he campaigned for the state's highest office, he spent 16 to 18 hours a day trying to reach as many voters as possible. At the conclusion of the campaign, Carter calculated that he had personally met more than 300,000 Georgians. Sitting in his study, the truth became evident. Carter wrote in his autobiography, quote, The comparison struck me. 300,000 visits for myself in three months and 140 visits for God in 14 years. Folks, we have to capitalize on every opportunity we get to share the gospel with those that are far from, from God. Time is of the essence. Uh, this week, uh, kind of a connected, distant family member passed away at the age of 55. That's how old I am. We went to the funeral. It was Tuesday night. There was not a single mention of the name Jesus Christ. Just a lot of nonsense about him being in a better place. 
Now, if you know me at all, there was a couple of times my wife squeezed my leg pretty hard because she was like, Michael, please don't do this. Don't do something you're going to regret. Because you know, I, I honestly, I wanted to walk up to the pastor who was the pastor of a Baptist church and say, hey, I wanted to tell you, this is the worst funeral I've ever been to in my whole life. Thank you very much. I didn't, but I wanted to. We'll get to the part about season with salt here in a minute. But, but here's the point, folks. We got to stop saying and playing games in our minds about things that just aren't true. They spent a lot of time, in fact, there was more cursing at this funeral than I had ever seen in any funeral, or even close. People got up and talked about how they weren't going to push this guy around, and he was a tough old boy, and blah, blah, blah. And, that, but, and the pastor gets up and says, well, at least now we know he's in a better place. No, he isn't. He's not in a better place. Because he's dead without Christ, he's not in a better place. We shouldn't say these things. We shouldn't think these things. We shouldn't get sucked into this worldly thinking that somehow we feel sorry for everybody and so we, give, we kind of give everybody a spiritual pass when they die because it creeps into our thinking and we begin to think that about our own friends and our own neighbors and our own coworkers and our own family members that it's all right. They, they believe that God exists. They believe that Jesus exists they go to church on Christmas and Easter. They must believe something. Folks, if a person doesn't believe the gospel, what Paul was talking about here, they are still far from God. The way isn't wide. The way is narrow. The Bible doesn't say that most everybody's going to go to heaven unless they're really, really bad. It says that everybody's going to hell except those who receive Christ as their Savior. So this is important, folks. We have, got to, uh, uh, we have got to pray and we've got to walk. Now, before we go on to step three, let's think back to that other strategy. What happens if a person uh, gets caught on fire and they do two-thirds of the steps? Let's say they're really serious about the first two steps. They, they stop and they drop. What happens? They become a campfire. I mean, that's it. Okay. I mean, that's it. It doesn't help them at all to do the first two steps. And folks, we got to get out of our thinking that somehow praying and, and living is enough. It's not. I challenge you to find a place in the New Testament where the strategy to reach people for Christ is ever just live for Jesus and pray for others. But don't talk about it. I challenge you to find it. If you find that, come and tell me because i got something to learn. I don't think it's there, folks. And Paul doesn't say it either. The third step is to speak. And he says, speak with grace. Speak with grace. Verse 6. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Speak with grace. Be pleasant. Just be pleasant. We can't make disciples if we can't make any friends, folks. I mean, it's just really hard to make disciples of people that can't stand you. It's really hard. Remember, we are witnesses. We are not judges or uh, prosecuting attorneys. We are witnesses. But at the same time, we can't whittle off the edges of the truth. We can't make the gospel something that's easier to palate. The gospel is very true and it's very specific. And so if people are offended by the message, that's between them and God. But if they are offended at my delivery, that's on me. That's on me. 
So my uh, prayer is always, God, help me not be the thing that, that causes them to not feel like the gospel is palatable. I like this phrase, seasoned with salt. So if you have a steak and, and you don't season it at all, it's, it's still pretty good, in my opinion. Okay? I, I, just, I love steak. And, it's, and, and you get a good steak, a good cut of meat. It is great all by itself with nothing on it. It can be eaten. It can be tasted. It can be stomached, if that's a word. And, but here's the thing. If it's seasoned correctly... It's even a little better, isn't it? Now, I don't want to give the impression that we can make the gospel better. It's 100% all on its own. But the reality is, folks, if we can speak to someone and kind of season the gospel with salt, if we can help them connect their deepest need with the gospel and how it meets that need, that just becomes even more palatable. Even more palatable. By the way, silence is not love, folks. It's the opposite. If we refuse to talk about the gospel to those we love, we're not loving them. In reality, we're hating them. We're letting them go to eternity without Christ, without speaking to them. So, folks, we have to speak to them with grace, with grace. It's the truth wrapped in love. Finally, Paul says, don't only speak to them with grace, but speak intelligently. Speak intelligently. Back to verse 6, remember he says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. A great Bible teacher, Howard Hendricks, said this, quote, In the midst of a generation screaming for answers, Christians are stuttering, unquote. What he's saying here, folks, is, listen, there are people out there that are waiting to hear the gospel, the number one reason people don't come to church is because nobody's invited them. The Bible says the problem is not the harvest. The problem isn't the field out there. It's, it's white and ready to be picked. The problem is there aren't any people to go and work in the field. You know, when we talk about upper education, you get a bachelor's degree in four years. You get a master's degree in six years. And you get a PhD in eight years. Unless, of course, you're a music major, in which case you get a bachelor's in six years. Okay. Listen, everybody who's here uh, has been a Christian more than eight years. You should have a PhD in Christianity. Now, I'm not talking about a formal education. What I'm talking about is in a real-life way, the way your uh, uh, personal spiritual life works out in real life, you should be a doctor. You should be practicing at that level. Now, many of you have hobbies that you're, you're masters of. I mean, I, I, I talk to you about them, you put them on Facebook, and you're a master at them because you've practiced them, you've executed them, you've studied them for years. Now, I don't mean this to people who became a Christian a month ago or six months ago, but we should all be masters of our faith as far as real life is concerned. How does your Christianity really work out? The reason we should be masters is we're practicing it day by day, Right? We're executing our Christianity at some level all day long, every single day. We should be studying it as we, as we read and study and memorize God's word. What a shame it is. What a shame it is when a lost person has real life questions about how to give their life to Jesus and understand Christianity and we can't answer their simple questions. 
Now, I know that for most of you, the fear of not being able to answer their questions, just, it just paralyzes you. You're afraid somebody's going to say, hey, I watched Indiana Jones last night. Where's the Ark of the Covenant? And you're not going to be able to answer them, right? I don't want to face that, okay? But most people are asking questions like, hey, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? Folks, if you've been a Christian any time at all, you're trying to be a good person and bad things have happened to you. Why does that happen? You ought to be able to answer that. How does a loving God let people go to hell? You ought to be able to answer that. There are hundreds of questions that are very basic about our faith, folks, that all of us, if we've been a Christian for any time at all, we should be able to answer. And the worst... The worst is when your friend says to you, you know, I've been thinking about this Christianity thing. I know you've talked to me occasionally. I, I, I think I'm ready. I want to give my life to Jesus. And you say, that's awesome. Let me make an appointment with our pastor. I love you all, but shame on you. Shame on you. If you've been a Christian for any time at all, you should be doing that for them. You shouldn't have to come into the, to the professional. By the way, we're, we're simply the equippers we're the teachers. We're the educators. And by the way, we've taught that over and over and over again. Many of you are just scared. I want to encourage you. Jump into the deep end of the pool. Lead somebody to Jesus. Okay, you guys are the ministers. We're just the teachers and the equippers. Listen, if you're on fire, there is a very clear strategy that works really well. Stop, drop, and roll. And if you'll do all three of them, and you'll do all three of them in the right order, and you'll do them quickly, you probably have a really good chance of surviving. But if your friends and family are in danger of eternal separation from God and punishment in hell, we should look at the strategy, pray, walk, and speak, and we should do this by instinct just as quickly as we would stop, drop, and roll. Today our family is going to go have lunch somewhere before we come back for the business meeting at 1 o'clock. And like always, I'm going to uh, tell the server that we're going to pray for our meal. And is there anything that I can pray for them for? Now, almost all the time they give me something. Maybe their aunt's sick or maybe they're moving in a week. And you know, maybe it's, it's something that is, they don't put much thought into or whatever. But I'm praying for an opportunity to minister to them. I'm going to be watching for an opportunity of how, how they respond and how they react. And if God delivers an opportunity, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it and hopefully share the gospel with them. I don't get a chance to do that very often uh, with a server at a, a restaurant because they're at their job. Or trying to, but there was a guy that came to our church for years because he was a server at Smokehouse, and I asked him that question. I asked him that question. So folks, I really want to encourage you. Use Paul's strategy. He's telling the whole church, all of the Colossians, look guys, I want you to pray, walk, and speak the gospel so that we can win people around us to Jesus. You know what? I'll bet somebody prayed, walked, and spoke to you if you know the gospel. It only makes sense that we should do it for others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that guides and leads us. We thank you for the challenge that your word gives us. God, help us to overcome our fears. Help us to overcome uh, just the, um, uh, 
feeling of, of fear that sometimes can just paralyze us. God, thank you for the person that spoke the gospel to us, that shared the truth with us, or we would not have known you. And so, Father, we pray now that you would use us, that you would help us to be salt and light to a world that needs to savor you and needs to see you clearly. God, help us to do these things in a way that's almost instinctive, that it just becomes a part of who we are because we love you so much and we love others and want to see them know you also. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.